Over the past five years, a new social media platform has risen to all-time popularity. And I think you all know what it is. It's TikTok. TikTok features short-form videos from content creators all over the world, has been downloaded more than 2 billion times. Yes, you heard that right. That's B billion. And the app's insane dominance in the social media world has not only transformed pop culture, but it's also influencing trends in the restaurant and foodie space. From shining a light to small mom and pop restaurants to sharing obscure speakeasies in subway stations. Restaurants no longer need to rely as much on outstanding reviews in the Sunday Times to get media attention. But where did this pivot come from, and why does it seem like 15-second videos are replacing highly sought-after reviews from critics? Hi, everyone. I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. As we all know, the pandemic created a lot more at-home time for everyone in the world, which led to all of us spending hours and hours ingesting the latest news, videos, podcasts, TV, basically anything we could find and get our hands on. In fact, most statistics seem to agree that in 2020, Americans spent seven to eight hours a day digesting digital content. I am definitely guilty and part of the statistic. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Remember when Tiger King was all people could talk about? TikTok essentially gave people, and especially younger generations, an additional opportunity to create and digest even more. So much of the food videos came in the form of at-home cooking hacks. Did you see the feta cheese pasta cookie cereal or the tortilla fold hack thing? I did. And in fact, the tortilla fold hack one... I've utilized because here's the deal. Once I learned how to fold a burrito and do it properly, the burrito ended up more in my stomach than it did in my lap. Right. Similarly to these tortilla ones where you can fold in all these flavors and you can really make it into something. See, now I got the tortilla one down pat. I, I really, really crush it. And it's something I'm still doing. It's so easy with like leftovers in your fridge to make those things work well. It's so yeah. handheld. The pasta one, I think the recipe I followed needed a little tweaking, but mm -hmm. my uh, my soon-to-be mother-in-law did it. Oh, yeah, my soon-to-be mother-in-law made one, and she did it way better than I did. But definitely one of those things where I was like, wow, this is like technique that I wouldn't have been able to learn if I just like glance, glance past this on Instagram. It's totally different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as we all know, as restrictions were lifted and the restaurant world figured out what their new norm was, individuals who were already on the TikTok app took their followers with them on local adventures. With seamless edits of videos, flashy text, and trending songs playing over the, at most, one-minute-long videos, there is no way the clips wouldn't be successful in our 150 characters or less world. Yeah, there are so many examples of this, but one of them is the handmade donut shop in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood, Beacon Donuts. This particular bakery became super popular after TikToker Best Date Food, which I'm sure some of you have seen on Instagram and... TikTok featured the hidden alleyway location. The video, which garnered over 1 million views in a very little amount of time, showed off the secret spot and food while Doja Cat's popular song Say So played in the background. I really feel like the song can make or break the videos, by the way. It For either sure. gets me amped up or it, or it brings me down. So I feel you. Yeah. After the video's viral and instant success, Beacon Donuts continued to sell out every day and maintained a consistent line of hungry customers about 30 to 40 people deep. And do you know what the best part was of the story, Zach? What's that? This little donut shop did not pay one single penny to get their name out there. They just happened to have the right customer who was willing to feature their location on their already popular account. So this is just one example of a restaurant's rise to fame from short form piece of content to viral success. But I think it really highlights the force and power of social media and its ongoing influence over the foodie scene, which I don't think is going anywhere anytime soon. Yes, leveraging new menu items, exciting restaurant features, or even special events at your restaurant's location may in fact cause it to become well-known for free. The inexpensive feature does sound enticing for business owners. It takes a lot of work. Many of these popular videos worth millions of views not only take a lot of time to create, but they also have an exciting factor about the restaurant. And some of the foodie influencers who will create and post them for you have a four or five figure price tag attached to them. But whether it's a secret spot, a wild menu item that's Instagrammable, or even an underrepresented location, a common theme aside from the video's aesthetics is the hook. What's exciting and cool about this restaurant and what will drive customers in? Yeah, this answer could be as simple as a fun fact about your location, a brief 30-second interview with frequent customers who you know would not shy away from an opportunity to chat on camera, or some kind of unique kitchen process. You know, so many videos that I've seen are just restaurants and bakeries putting together a fun burrito or making their own sugar candy or a fast reel of their staff putting together a giant cheese-filled plate of nachos with all the trimmings. Whatever the factor may be, test it out and start trying to create. You may just find yourself in a sold out predicament. So there you have it. Zach, do you use TikTok? 
So I am one of those people who I've, I've talked a lot about this with other business owners and I definitely peruse it personally. I, it's, yeah. I can't avoid it these days. Everyone, my fiance included, but my friends just like constantly send me TikToks. I have not used it to promote my business yet because we haven't been cooking yeah. as much like we used to. Like there isn't something that I feel like I would want to put out there that would be, that'd be as enticing. But I honestly, I find myself in the last like month, especially like I got to get in there and do it. I, I have so much fun consuming it that I know that if I started putting it out there, that it would have a, a genuinely good return pretty much instantly. Do you? Yeah. I, I feel like also when I think about all the people who, uh, what are they, the, the, like the beer connoisseurs and the people that are really beer and brewery and craft beer obsessed, I even think there's something you could do with your bar. Yeah. No, honestly, we had a, th- a talk a while ago being like, before this whole thing happened, before TikTok really took off, we had talked about doing quick YouTube videos that was like one minute education on each like beer style or like you know different beer trivia that you could do in little video clips. And weirdly enough, this actually works a lot better as TikTok than it does on YouTube or any of the other video channels, even Instagram. Yeah. So now like the kind of ideas I've been tossing around with some friends is like kind of producing these funny little quick videos that people might share around. You know, maybe beer won't be the most popular thing on TikTok. I think there's an age thing there. But I think that there's definitely room for it to grow and with my other location the seasonal spot we have so much room to work with because we got the scenery and we have so many cool customers that like i think would be really down to do it like we had a dog wearing sunglasses the other day and i was like (laughs) if i had tiktok right now i would be going viral people love dogs that's one of those things i think going forward yeah especially dogs and sunglasses just adds that extra certain je ne sais quoi doesn't it yeah (laughs) (laughs) but no sorry to answer your other question i do not use tiktok i did have an account briefly that i was using to make very funny cat videos of my cat who he he has quite little personality but no i don't have one anymore but i am very active on social media in general and i will tell you that i think that it, it does work i mean i have gone to restaurants that I would not have gone to because I saw some of their foodie videos or there are some Chicago food influencers like Chicago Food Authority where when she goes and visits a bakery or a new coffee shop or something I will definitely go because I saw her and I didn't even know it was there. We I was was like back a couple of months ago I had a friend send a video along that of a new South Korean style uh, fried hot dog like corn dog place that had opened up down the Lower East Side. Oh yeah. And we set aside an entire Saturday to go check it out. Now, when we got there, clearly the TikTok had worked because there was like an hour and a half long line wow. to get corn dog. For a corn dog. Which I was really, you know, yeah. And we, we'd kind of planned the day around it, so I didn't mind. Uh, and, you know, we just kind of battered. We took time in line to kind of like go off and, and, and talk to other people. But that was one of those things. I was like, wow, these businesses can really, really benefit from just getting one little quick shout out. Not to mention the dogs look great. Like they're a very, they like one of them is essentially like a giant mozzarella stick. It's filled with cheese instead. Oh, they know what they're doing. So yeah, I mean, that's like, that's like a hole in one or a gimme basically for social media content. Yeah, it's exactly. It's those, it's those perfect Instagrammable nuggets that people just go nuts for. Yeah. I saw one recently and it's, I, I mean, I thought it was overly decadent myself, but I see a lot where people are doing like ice cream and cotton candy or cotton candy taco shells filled with like sugar on top of sugar on top of sugar. And even though I don't know if I would actually want to eat that, I watched the whole thing. I'm like so fascinated by these little shops that are creating these really, really fun and interesting foodie, colorful foodie, I don't know, foodie things. Well, that's a shock and awe. You know, everyone wants to get the eyeballs. And if you do it by doing something that's like probably tastes okay, but is like at least something enough to draw attention to you, then then you're winning. You don't have to make that your number one selling item. In fact, you probably don't hope that people buy as much of those as they do your really good croissant or something. But do you remember it's like those cakes that people were cutting where they would like spill out all the sprinkles? Oh yes, which I I'm do like, remember this. That doesn't. That's like the, the you know the food equivalent of getting glitter bombed, which you don't. <laughs> you know you never want that to happen to you. I don't see like the the joy of experiencing sprinkles all over your kitchen table. Uh, outside of like a quick video that you get from it. Right. So maybe that's the sort of thing is like when you design it specifically for the video, the desired effect is really just on the consumption visual end, not on the actual food consumption. Mm-hmm. But if it gets people to show up and buy your stuff, then so be it. Yeah. And it's the age old advertising technique where to, whereas if you throw it in front of their face enough times and you get somebody to view the ad enough times, they're going to remember you and you're going to be the first person that they think about. Right. And you're going to want to go and see them. And I think that you know, seeing all these restaurants that are really active on social media, seeing even Aya, who's going to be on next after this, after the show and seeing her, her social Instagram, she's from Aya Pastry. I think that when I thought about, Hey, where do I buy baked goods? 
I mean, she was the first person I thought of just because I know that they're doing a lot on social media and they're super active and it's always on my feed. What about, you mentioned Beacon Donuts earlier. What about them? Have you been there yet? I haven't been there yet, but I've definitely seen it. And I remember going past there and seeing the line that was in fact, 40 or 50 people deep and thinking, oh my gosh, wow. You know, what a, what a crazy success story. Here's this little donut shop that's just doing wildly well or super well because of this video. I think it's also something about the generation that TikTok is reaching in particular. And that is this Gen Z, which I know most of their users are pretty young. They're in that teenage to early 20, early 20s, somewhere in there. I think that, you know, restaurant owners, bakeries, operators, it's not a generation to be missed. They may not have necessarily the disposable incomes that millennials and some of the older generations have, but they have so much of their attention and their eyes on social media that they can't be ignored. And I think that they are going to have an influence over the foodie scene over the next few, you know, the years to come. And, and I think that they are visiting these places and they are spending and they are going there and meeting up with their friends at these places. So I agree. It's important. For many of us in the food service industry, creativity became key to a restaurant and business's survival in 2020, not only from a social media standpoint, but from a how to reach your customers now and sell standpoint. And that's exactly what our next guest did. We're excited to have Michelin star and award-winning pastry chef Aya Fukai on with us today. Aya owns and operates Aya Pastry in Chicago's Westtown neighborhood, which was listed as the top 100 best bakeries in America by Food & Wine magazine. Her other awards include Eater's National Pastry Chef of the Year. She was nominated in 2017 for James Beard Outstanding Pastry Chef, and she won the Chicago Tribune's Pastry Chef of the Year in 2018. When the pandemic hit, Aya and her team opened up a retail storefront in order to sell their delicious goodies, breads, and at-home baking kits, which just took off. Utilizing the power of social media, her team showcased all of their mouthwatering pastries each and every week, consistently selling out and drawing in new crowds of hungry customers, myself included. So Aya, we're super excited to have you here with us today to talk about your journey through the pastry world, how the bakery got started, your ties to Chicago's fame, Maple and Ash, and all of your success. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be honest with you guys. Yeah, we're really, we're really, really happy to have you today. Very, very exciting. Um, so just to kick things off, could you tell us how you got into baking? Just like the, the starter question, what did you do? Or did you grow up in a baking centric family? Or when did your family or when did your love for fresh buttery croissants and perfectly iced cake start? I mean, everybody likes cake from the get-go, right? <laughs> I do. <laughs> the best part of birthdays. <laughs> One of my first words. Well, I've always grown up in a family that um, put importance on good quality food as well as ingredients. So that was definitely the start of my career. But growing up, I thought that I was going to own a cake shop, as I would phrase it in Japanese, when I grew up because I can eat all the cake that I wanted. Um, and it's just like boys wanting to be astronauts or girls wanting to be princesses. I just wanted to be a cake shop owner so I could eat all the cake in the world. I love that. And it was just something that I always said. And, you know, you know, the chances of you actually becoming what you said you're going to be at that age, five, five years old, six years old is very slim. And I didn't really have it as my actual life goal when I was entering high school and college. I actually started college as a pre-med student thinking that I was going to go into the science field um, as a pediatrician. Oh, wow. And that's quite the jump. <laughs> yeah, it's completely different. Um, it is the same background. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. It is the same background as my um, my father's side of the family. So I, it naturally made sense to me that that was a more of a realistic goal in life rather than following your dreams type of um, situation. But when I realized during school that that wasn't exactly the right fit for me, I happened to go to Boston University where they had a um, hospitality management program. And that's the school that I changed over to. And said, you know what, I'm just going to go for what I always said I was going to be when I was a little girl. Um, so I got my foot in the door through the BU administration kind of uh, dining hall where I became an intern at this place called the state room. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody was very kind enough to be very patient with me because I didn't have any culinary school background to teach me everything from what a sheet tray was to how to turn on a mixer 
And then from there, I went job to job and learned all of the skills that I needed to to own my own bakery. That's incredible. That is incredible. And and I love your transition. (laughs) I had no idea that you started off in the medical field and then you ended up switching over to to this. That is so cool. I was quite studious. I could tell. There's a lot of that in the food world, right? Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of that in the food world. I was trying to go to become a diplomat and I did the same thing. I was like, I'm going to change, try this first. Right. And if this doesn't work out, then I'll go to the State Department. But that's, yeah, that's kind of amazing that, you know, a lot of people, you see the writings on the wall, you're like, the opportunity's here, might as well give it a shot, right? Exactly. And when I realized that the medical school, you know, route was not the right fit for me, I realized that right away. And thankfully, I went to a school where the hospitality administration program was actually available Mm -hmm. because it was a big enough school. So how long were you in Boston? Did you bounce around Boston a lot before Chicago or what was the pathway there? Yes. So from Japan, my whole family moved to Boston when I was nine years old. Um, And I grew up there and went to school there. I went to BU and then graduated, became a banquet manager at a Hyatt. Of course, right? right? Because that makes sense too. (laughs) And then uh, pursued culinary career kind of from there um, into the kitchen at that Hyatt as well. And went from there to two different fine dining restaurants and then became a fine dining pastry chef at Mentone in Boston. And one of my friends called me up. Um, about 10 years ago now and said, Aya, there's a pastry chef opportunity here in Chicago. Why don't you come over and give it at least a shot? Let's stage and interview with the chef and see where it goes. And that's when I landed in Chicago at Rhea um, at the former Elysian Hotel, which is now the Waldorf Astoria. So I'm, an, I'm actually a North Shore kid myself. I grew up in Massachusetts too. Um, but oh, nice. Yeah, I was. What was it like? Is I mean, that's a huge jump to make for. Yeah, you're you're entering a really good job it wasn't like you're kind of going there set unseen but was it tough to convince yourself to like move halfway across the country for a job like that I think so but at the time I felt like I had gone through all of these different fine dining restaurants in Boston and I wanted to move to a bigger food city and as beautiful as a city as Boston is um, it does not quite have the same kind of food scene that Chicago has. So I have always had Chicago or New York or LA in mind and Chicago just happened to be my spot and I fell in love with it. So I'm still here after 10 years. Also, they always say Chicago and Boston are like twin brothers. And I kind of feel that way um, in some ways, but you're right. It's a, it's a step up for, for many reasons. Not that Boston scene is bad. It's just, it's a different game. Definitely. But before, I guess we kind of jumped over something I, I wanted to talk about too. So growing up in Japan, uh, until you moved to the States, how did that influence your journey into the culinary world? And, and what parts of Japanese food and culture like have impacted you and have impacted you the most? I think a lot of it has had a huge impact on me, not just for the food scene, but also the culture and how I grew up and what was of value to me. Yeah. Um, I grew up with my mother still cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner while having a 40-hour job. I don't know how she did it, but... She's always loved cooking and my father has too. And every meal was was cooked and a lot of it was Japanese. And she dabbled in a little bit Italian cuisine, American cuisine, all sorts of different foods and also made cakes for her birthday. I, I really don't know how she did it because I don't have any children and I can't, I can like barely yeah. hold myself together. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that definitely had a huge impact that my mother's belief, especially as a Japanese mother, you know, you they, they usually pack a bento box for their children to take to school for lunch. And while some other kids, not that there's anything wrong with it, but some other kids were taking, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or eating chicken fingers in school for lunch. My mother was always packing me these bento boxes with 10 different components with different, you know, compartments within the box. Wow. So the importance of food there really had an impact on me, I think, and how food can bring happiness And in Japan, the standards of ingredients is also much, much higher. Um, Chicago is great. I think the bigger cities, you know, kind of have the grasp on the idea of farmer's markets to get better produce or something like that um, or better chocolate. But in Japan, even in a regular household, 
if you go to a regular grocery store, the quality of the ingredients are very, very different there. And the farmers take a lot of pride and they also get a ton of recognition for what they produce and bring to the table for every community. And I think that also had a big impact on me as well. Um, And although I've never worked in a Japanese restaurant as a chef, I have the flavor palette of the Japanese background. So even though I might have a French style cake, um, the filling may be the Japanese citrus yuzu. Yeah. Um, And then frosted with buttercream because I grew up in Boston and Chicago as well. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of everything that I am as a person, all of the product that you see in the bakery. I'm I'm sad I didn't go to school with you because I would have I would have known exactly who to go to on the playground to trade my peanut butter and jelly sandwich with. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. It's very strange because back then um, I just wanted to fit in. So my mom was going through all these efforts. And I think right now, if you're a kid right now and you brought a bento box, everyone would be jealous, but not to age myself. But back then when I was going to elementary school, it was like seaweed. What is that? Gross. And right now, it's you know, if you bring sushi for lunch and you're a kid in fourth grade, everyone oh, wants your lunch. Oh yeah, you're the coolest yeah. kid on campus. Yeah, <laughs> right. Whereas before, um, when my mom was actually going through all these efforts, all I wanted was that peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> because that's what everybody else had. It's hard to get Dunkaroos for seaweed. That's for yeah. sure. I don't know. Dunkaroos are it's pretty a- great though. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I would want those. I would yeah. want to trade for those back then. My mom didn't yes. buy me Dunkaroos either. So no. Yes. Um, okay. So you talked about the ingredients and that you were really focused on that and that had, you know, how Japanese culture and food influenced that. And I would imagine that that really helped you when you were at, you know, I think about four of these, these five-star hotels and I feel like they're also so focused on that. And so, and I think about the menus that you've created um, and some of the items you've created. And I know, um, like I'm th- I actually thought of your coconut cake because I think that's such a delicious item that you have in one of your bakeries. So yeah. So talk to us a little bit more about that and how you develop, how you use that to develop some of your menus and some of the items that you decide to sell. Sure. Um, so for one thing, I do believe in supporting local farmers and Chicago, unfortunately, isn't like a forever spring and summer weather. It does get very, very cold in the winter. And infamously so, right? yes. And there's nothing available from local farms. But it's almost like this beautiful thing when you see that first strawberry available. I think it's coming up maybe next week. But when you see that, you know, it inspires me to actually create something that becomes available just through the local farmers from Michigan, um, from other areas of Illinois. And that definitely becomes a part of our menu. And you can really taste the difference between, you know, the grocery store bought clamshell strawberries and these beautiful sun strawberries that are in baskets on a big flat that we would bring into the store. So that's one of the ways that we definitely utilize the fresh produce, the better ingredient. And we also use a very high fat content European butter, as opposed to a regular stick of butter that you would find in a grocery store. Okay. All these little things that you choose as your ingredient does make a huge impact on the final product. Uh, product. So same, same thing with our bread flour. It's a locally milled flour called bread rose at central milling. So all of these things, it's just the little touches that we have. I wouldn't go through every ingredient, but it's just some examples. Well, so much of your menu, I, I, I love that it's like a contemporary spin on the classically inspired desserts and how you incorporate all these ingredients. It's so interesting. I can, I'm a, I'm a huge sugar person. I love baked goods. I, my, my favorite part of celebrations is the cake. So, and of course the people gathering, but you know, so I'm all for it. Um, but I have to go back a little bit here because I want to talk about how the bakery got started because I, you have a really interesting story about heading to Maple and Ash and then that's kind of how you got your start or how, what later turned into the spin-out that is Aya Pastry. Is that correct? It actually goes even further back to my very first job oh. that I took in Chicago that I talked about, which is the Elysian Hotel and becoming the pastry chef of that. When I became the pastry chef there, I met Danny Grant who is currently the chef owner of Maple and Ash. 
um, as well as Etta's and the other Maple and Ash and Scottsdale yep. and all of these things that they're opening up very soon. Yeah. But I met, that was the very first time that I met Danny Grant and David Pizer um, also used to be one of the owners of the Elysian Hotel. And he is now one of the owners of Maple and Ash as well. And the whole reason why they wanted me to become a part of Maple and Ash before the bakery was for me to have a place to work and to prove myself that I deserve my own bakery Mm -hmm. while I work there. So the intention from the very beginning, because they had already known me and worked with me at the Elysian, was for me to be stationed at Maple and Ash to create their menu Meanwhile, working on the floor plans, the electric wiring and coordinating with all of these general contractors to start building the bakery. So one of the reasons why it stands today is because we are sourcing all of the baked goods, including breads, breakfast pastries for brunch and cakes and their dessert menu from the bakery and acting as a commissary. So that was the initial start of the bakery because we already knew that there was going to be a backbone to the bakery's revenue source. Yeah. And I read that, what is it, 70 to 75% of your pastry shop's revenue came from wholesale accounts. So like the restaurants, hotels, other eateries around the city. And did, when did you really, did you make that shift to consumer really during the pandemic or had you already been thinking about making more of that shift? So I had already been thinking about making some of the shift shift. Um, I didn't realize how fast it was going to be until the pandemic (laughs) um, hit. But my sister-in-law just happened to be a COVID nurse uh, stationed in Seattle. So I don't know if you remember the start of this pandemic, but it started kind of from the West Coast in, um, in the US. So I already kind of knew that this was going to be a big deal before it was a big deal in Chicago specifically. So I was talking to all of my you know, managers and saying, we're going to have to do something about this, not realizing the actual severity of things, but knowing that as no one did. Exactly. Right, we yeah. thought it was going to be over in two weeks or a month and right, a half. Right. Um, I remember talking at the office and people were saying, hey, when do we all think we're coming back? And I think the furthest out prediction was two months at that point. Exactly. So lo and behold, over a year later, here, here we, we are. are. So, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, many, so many things learned. Exactly. So I already kind of had in mind that we needed to make something happen. So we, we actually did not close a single day. Wow. Wow. Uh, because we can still operate on a grocery store level as a bakery that's selling things behind a shelf that we give to our customers. So, so do you mean like, like the flour, the coat, the things you would have oh, no. at the bakery? Um, as in, um, we, we didn't have a sit down a step. We don't really, we don't have to have a sit down establishment. So oh, I see what you mean. We qualified kind of in that same category of like a grocery store because you're coming to our bakery to buy a croissant to buy a finished, you know, thing in a bag that we serve to our customers without a sit down service. Um, And we were doing that just on the weekends before the pandemic struck because we wanted to grow retail a little bit. And all of a sudden, one day, as we predicted, because I had been talking to my sister-in-law, everything actually had to shut down for the government. Um, and when that day came, we were ready to do retail every day because we lost about 40 something, 45, 46 accounts within the city. So that revenue stream just shut down without a choice for us at all, but we decided to do retail and it has held us over. And then some, now that everything is opening back up, um, we have a whole different set of problems right now <laughs> yeah, where yeah. it's just too much all at once, but it's something that, you know, I can't really complain about. It's a good kind of problem to have, but we decided to add products like the frozen bake at home kits um, because people wanted to stay in. People were afraid. They didn't want to come out every day to get a fresh croissant. So even from day one, when things shut down, we had this frozen bake at home product 
selection available for our customers to purchase. And I think that's one of the reasons why we really made it. It's kind of crazy. We haven't had to furlough or lay off anyone from the very start. So the shift has worked. How did you manage that? Because I had the same situation. I got super, super lucky uh, when COVID hit and we were able to stay open in our retail capacity as well. And I didn't have to lay off any employees. They're all very grateful that they had someplace to show up every day. They, I mean, we're being very conscious of safety concerns for staff and customers, but did you, how did you find that was through, this, through the pandemic specifically? And how do you think, like, how does the team feel now that you've all been through something like that? Because I know for me, we feel we, like these guys are, they were already with us for a long time, but now I feel very, very closely bonded with them. Yes, of course. There's definitely that feeling. It was also very strange because we were in our own bubble where it was almost normal showing up to work every day, aside from the fact that we had to distance each other a little bit more and be careful um, and also wear a mask, which was something that we weren't used to a year ago. But it has definitely brought us closer together. And it's because of the people that work at the bakery that this was even possible because I've heard of nightmare situations where, you know, some places wanted to try to stay open, but their employees were unwilling or didn't want to, or very upset that, you know, rightly so I completely understand that. Um, or the fact that they had to pivot. Um, they didn't understand why a business had to become a to-go business when they were in fine dining. I have heard so many different people's stories and my staff was not like that. They said, okay, we got to pivot in business. This is what we're going to do. And I'm going to create systems with you to make sure that our new systems and foundation can be, you know, something that can hold us together. It may be on more of a survival mode rather than how efficiently we can get things done, but <laughs> we're going to do this together. And we all worked it out. And at first, I think we had to cut everyone's hours from 40 hours a week to maybe just working three days okay. um, a week. And af after week two, because there was such a demand, everyone was back on full time again. Wow. That's not exactly something you slap together. That's, that's, as a New Yorker, I'm mystified by that. Yes. <laughs> wow. That is incredible. And I, and I saw too, that you added a drive-through. Yeah, we have a little bit more uh, land over here in Chicago without the rent. Yeah, oh my God, that must be a dream. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think that really worked in favor for us because I remember walking out of the bakery one night and I turned around and looked around I'm like, oh my God, I had this eureka moment where I closed the door and I looked and saw that our bakery is, we have a parking lot that's attached to the bakery. And the parking lot, if we blew out one of the windows that was right inside the parking lot, I could create a drive-through window. And Oh, very creative. And then the parking lot also just happens to have a gate out to the alley, the elusive alley oh, that you don't have in <laughs> New York. <laughs> but in Chicago we do so there was this flow of traffic that could come in through our parking lot stop at the window that we blew out of the side of the building and get out into the alley and have their day so we decided to do a more quick express grab-and-go item menu through the drive-through and so many people wanted to try it because first they wanted to grab something without entering a building um, for safety. Yes. And I also realized that unrelated to COVID, there were people um, who were parents that had little kids screaming in their cars that they could not leave behind in a car to drop into our storefront or people on bicycles that didn't have a chain to, you know, chain up their bicycle to the nearest pole um, that would just come through the drive-through as well. And people walking dogs that would walk up to the drive-through window um, because they could come with their dogs and grab their treats. So it worked all the way around, but. Well, yeah. And it really blew up on social too, because I, I mean, your Instagram had, you know, had a 
few thousand followers and now it has even more. And I've seen some of your videos are getting thousands and thousands of views. I remember some of the local, the little local um, influencers and the, uh, the local uh, like Chicago eater covering it and showing these photos. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, the, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of action going on at the pastry shop. I also have to be very thankful for all of the influencers because they did everything um, free of charge. Oh, wow. So it's it's kind of crazy how community-driven some of those influencers are and how willing they were in assisting me. Um, I think, you know, it's also because all these restaurants closed. They can't go out and right. the food bloggers, the food influencers, they don't have anything else to write about. Um, and I think they also found it intriguing that, like, we're, we stayed open, we're still able to push out food yeah so they jumped on us and I think the other thing is um you know when the pandemic hit the first things that I have to be concerned about was okay where are we spending our money and what's the outcome of that um and social media was something that a different company handled a third company handled pre-pandemic Ah. And I said to myself, you know what, like, I'm going to have to take over this because that's one cost that can actually be cut and give more jobs for the people inside this building. And now I do all of the Instagram and the social media for the bakery. So you're a baker <laughs> and a content creator now. Well, so if anybody is on Instagram, that's actually me that they're talking to on DM. Um, as- oh, I love it. On this YouTube message. Well, I was going to ask too. So we, I've been running social media for my businesses for a long time, but I feel like when COVID hit, there was like a major switch that flipped because uh-huh. I mean, weirdly enough, when everyone was kind of forced to become antisocial physically, everyone jumped onto social media. And I found that anytime I put something up, I was getting three times, four times the engagement on it. Even if it wasn't trying to be, even if it wasn't anything particularly special, people were just hitting me up. I couldn't stay on top of all the DMs that I was getting. And did you like, I don't know, did you feel like you were connecting a lot more with people, especially since you took it, you took it over from the other company, but I feel like I was connecting with people and my customers in a different way. Like overwhelmingly (laughs) so, I have to say. (laughs) Um, Lots of like high five emojis, lots of like hearts. There's so much like just goodwill going back and forth. It felt really good. And I think it's so different from the way that you know, I used to run my company because I could pass on information of specials that's happening for the next holiday to my social media, you know, third company that was handling it and they'll post it and I'll be done with it. Whereas right now, I think it's one of the most useful tools in communicating something that's immediate in an ever-changing day-to-day life. Because one day, you know, you're okay to be six feet apart the next day if you're vaccinated then you don't have to be and then mm-hmm. it's just changing every day and the rules for each and individual business yeah. is changing all of the time and i found it to be the best way to communicate not just what our specials are in store that day but also how we are handling the day-to-day changes immediately to our customers I think it's fair. That's completely for my experience as well. It's kind of hard. People are like, I can see online that you're open and Google says you're open, but I needed to message you and ask like, are you really open? And I'm like, yes. He's like, no, I, I promise you. Thanks. Right. I know things have gotten weird again, but, but definitely <laughs> like that, that instant communication is something that you didn't really get before. I guess people, if they wanted to call up, they could, but just being able to put it out there like that. I right. see a completely different side of social media now having gone through this and the need to communicate effectively I like won't look at it the same way ever again um, in a good way. I agree. Um, I think, you know, before I kind of used to have this weird hatred for it. Um, it's like an additional job that I have to do. But now I realize, realize that it's one of the most useful tools. And I think maybe we agree on that in that kind of kind of way. It's also your pastry chef. So you must be at least partially perfect perfectionist. And getting those posts right. For me, that was always the problem. I was like, I can't put this out there if it's not going to look good. And now I feel like, okay, yeah, I can get a picture out there. So long as it's there and the information is solid, that's all I care about anymore. Like, the right lighting, I'll give or take, whatever. That's fine. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> no, I'm definitely not like that. Um, the the stereotypical perfectionist pastry chef. I do like kind of a raw, organic. No, let's let's no BS kind of attitude. Um, yeah. It's just That's very refreshing for the for the bakery side of things, I got to say. Yeah, I think you can I don't know if you can tell from some of her posts, but um we're not trying to create things that are it you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to open a bakery was because I used to work in all of these fine dining restaurants with different accolades and although there's something that I cherish and I think is something that, you know, other people strive to do um, and love to do and I enjoy as a diner, I realized at some point that as a pastry chef in a two Michelin star restaurant, I can't even ask my friends or my family to come and try my food because you're asking them to pay $450, sit for a meal for two and a half hours, and then you'll get a piece that's a size of a quarter. (laughs) in terms of a dessert and maybe if you're lucky three of those courses for me um, and I just wanted to be in a situation where it was so much more approachable for the public to say you know here like here's my friend I know that she doesn't make a ton of money but I do not feel guilty for inviting her in for a cup of coffee and a croissant I just yeah absolutely yeah and to have a quality pastry it doesn't have to be after a 450 dollar meal and that's kind of what drove me to want to have the bakery in the first place and we're accomplishing that so yeah that's it's it's something that's very fulfilling to me um in this different sector of the industry that's awesome you're bringing the baked goods to the people exactly (laughs) And the Simple. smiles too. I feel like Kate, I feel like baked goods just make people really happy. I know you kind of mentioned this before, but there's something about that sweet, like the sweetness of sugar adds to the sweetness of life. I should hashtag that or something. Yep. Someone's already probably got that. <laughs> trademark it. Trademark it now. It's going to be gone. Let's <laughs> go like a lightning these days. Right. Um, I'm going to have it painted across my bakery. <laughs> that's oh, your Instagram wall. That's your Yeah. Perfect. You're, you'll be, you'll be the podcast influencer for us now. Um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I know that you talked about um, Maple and Ash. Last time we talked, Maple and Ash was expanding nationally and you kind of mentioned this before. So you are going to still continue supplying the baked goods for them, right? Actually, we're working on um, means. So I'm actually helping them find other local sources within the different cities that they're in produce the exact same recipes as what we're making so that they're supporting other bakeries in all these different cities that they're building in. Wow. What a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fresh baked bread, you know, in Scottsdale, Arizona for the Scottsdale, Arizona, maple and ash is always going to be better. And I'm not going to try to compete with that. Um, And we all came to the agreement that that's the move that we're making. So we're kind of, you know, sending recipes and methods and having tastings with all these different companies um, in the different cities that they're building to make sure. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, it still keeps the brand consistency. um, Yeah. Without sacrificing quality it's a taste of chicago with the local flavor exactly wow i'm really on a roll today with this i'm <laughs> yeah there's so many you've you got your copywriter hat on i know i don't know what's gotten into me wow <laughs> it's having a pastry chef on it's just it's very exciting for me as someone that has such a love for sugar um so Aya, what is a piece of advice you would give to someone else that's looking to get into the pastry world and start their journey? I think everyone has this notion that um, when you first enter the culinary world, uh, Zach, I'm sure you can relate to this, that they can just go in and start creating and putting new items on the menu and be the head chef. Um, It's not that way. And it's a slow grind. So my advice will always be to say, see what you can learn from the people that you're working with, 
people that are working above you in each and every step of the ladder that you need to climb to come to the top to become your own chef or your own bakery owner. Um, it's everything from the very beginning, from my internship to owning the bakery, all of the jobs that I had with different bosses is what created me to be who I am as a chef. So make sure that you take your time in learning and listening to all of the people that you're working for would be my advice. And also too, I always ask this because I do, I agree with what you just said too. You, you have all these notions when you're about to start this new career that you can come in and make all these decisions for yourself, but there's so many restrictions to reality in real life. But if you had to go back in time, I mean, considering what you just said and tell yourself years ago, as you're about to move to Chicago to take this, this great new job, what, is there anything you would do differently? Is there anything you would go back and teach yourself that you would, you would do over if you had to, or, or just maybe approach differently? It's a very hard question. <laughs> I usually, I don't have, I know. I think, I think of an answer to this for yeah, myself every day. I don't day. have much. I'm not really a type of person that lives with a ton of regret or anything like that. But I think if I had to go back um, and teach myself something that I know now that I did it back then was a little bit more of a work-life balance will not hurt you. I always strive to do better and better. And it is one of the qualities I think that got me up to the to where I am right now. But I sacrificed a lot of things outside of work to get there. Um, and especially with the pandemic and everything, I'm realizing how important it is the time that you spend outside of work um, and who you're with. And I think I gave up maybe yeah. a lot, a lot of that um, moving and becoming my own pastry chef. And, you know, there were like two months at a time that I would work without a day off. And I think looking back at it, that was a little extreme, um, I think, and not so healthy. And you see a lot of that in the industry. I don't think I'm the only person. Um, I'm sure, Zach, you've gone through. No, you're not. We hear about you are that not the only all person. the time. So, Present company included. <laughs> yeah. So I think if there's one thing that I could tell myself whether I believed it and said, okay, future Aya or not, <laughs> um, yeah. it would be the importance of work-life balance and what you do with your time outside of work and to make sure to give yourself some of that time off because that's when I think your brain can really flourish and be a little bit more creative. It's exactly how I feel. Which I think everybody got a dose of that during the pandemic, really. I mean, I think even... Even, I mean, I, I get that. I feel like the restaurant and food service industry really is like 24 hours because when you're not, when you're not actually serving customers that you're preparing or you're looking at your menus or you're looking at other things. And I mean, Zach and I have talked to so many guests and they've, everybody seems to have the same thing to say about this. And Zach, I mean, you and I have even talked about it for you and how you've personally dealt with the work-life balance. But I feel like the pandemic in general, it really made everybody think about it and it forced us to all sit a little bit more still. I know in your case, you said you didn't really close. So, um, but I would imagine that even, even then though, it was, it was different and there was a shift there. I say like some of the times that you had where you were, you're really for the first time in almost a decade for me forced, like I legally could not be where I was. We were allowed to stay open, but there are certain times of day where we had to be closed that normally I'd been working. And I was like, all of a sudden I had this newfound time to just catch up on emails, spend time with my fiance, have a beer on my own couch. Uh, and, it, and I remember thinking, I was like, wow, this is something that I've taken taken for granted for so long. It wasn't until I was legally mandated to be here that I was that I realized how much this is important to to my way I approach my own business. Having the the time enough right. to step away so you can come back with a fresh set of ideas and and look at things differently. Yeah. Um. I I hope yes. going forward. I think the industry. It seems like everyone I've talked to is the same yeah. kind of epiphany. They're like, well, I'm yeah. going to approach things differently now. Like like, what do you think post pandemic you're going to take into the the next phase of your business is like outside of the obvious stuff of, you know, you, like, you know, you're going to start doing national chain things. Are there other approaches that you think you're going to kind of work into your day to day? Yeah. I think, um, again, this whole idea of, okay, it's okay not to, to run all the time. Um, and I'm, I constantly 
had this idea before the pandemic that I was going to open four more stores um, and we're going to have all these different retail shops. Um, now that retail is successful and everything's going to be great. Um, but I'm kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, well, what can we grow in this property before we start branching out super fast to all of these other places? I realize that I'm perfectly content knowing the 24, 25, 26 employees that we may have within our bakery, getting to know what their life is like, who they are, what they find funny, what they like to eat. Um, and realizing that like that kind of brings happiness to my life more than having, I think it's wonderful that some people can give hundreds and thousands of jobs to, you know, people in America. But I think I, I realized that maybe I'm not that person and that um, owning a small business where I have a certain number of people that I get to know very well is something that I really want to do. Um, so I think the pandemic has kind of forced me in that direction of growth where we look internally and who works there to see how we want to propel the business in terms of the space that we're given, the number of people that we can have within the building to create something very special and also profitable and operations wise makes sense for the business. So my, my thought process has changed a lot. Yeah. We're very, very much on the same page with that as well. I feel it's, it's going to be a different decade going forward and probably thereafter too. Just so much is going to be different for the better, I think. Yeah. I love the human, the human centered and human ethos approach that you have there. And it sounds like you've got a great establishment and um, I can't wait to see what the future holds and I can't wait to keep visiting and following all of your <laughs> social media and drooling over my phone while I look at it. So well, you're in great. Chicago, so you can stop by any time. <laughs> oh yeah. I was going to say I'm, I'm left out over here, but I'm just gonna have to, I'm coming to Chicago this summer. I'm going to show up whether you like it or not. And I'm going <laughs> to buy some pastries. So <laughs> Zach Sounds has a good. long list of places to visit when he's in Chicago. Oh yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Aya. This was awesome. We really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Aya. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, eat.news. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms. So You Want to Run a Restaurant is powered by Back of House, the leading independent platform for independent restaurant operators to find, filter, and save on the technology they need to succeed. If you haven't checked them out yet, you need to head to backofhouse.io. All of their resources are free, and don't forget to subscribe to the free newsletter while you're there. This is honestly one of the best weekly restaurant industry roundups I've ever seen. Their incredible team of writers cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you actually need to see each and every week. It's built for restaurant operators and full of important industry news, expert perspectives, and special offers on cutting-edge restaurant technology. Follow Back of House on Twitter at BOH underscore news and at We Are Back of House on all other channels.